Matt Lazowitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on the big board, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. It's a good night, Will. Oh, Matt, it is a good night. Our 789th episode, big anniversary number. But I want to start with something incredibly petty because this is the only place that I get to voice this concern because because this is this is too too spicy for Twitter because it involves work the thing that everybody listens to a podcast to hear a work grievance. So, I am a full-time employee of Alabama Agricultural and Mechanical University here in Huntsville, Alabama. To make a little side money, some little uh, little comic book money, I occasionally do some adjunct work. And that includes adjuncting for the University of Alabama main campus in Tuscaloosa, which is about some two and a half hours away. Uh, this summer, I did that uh, via an online class. And I have done this class at UA more than 10 years now. Uh, not, not constantly, but my, the first time I did this class was in uh, 2011. So I've been doing this for a long time. And this year, for some strange reason, I don't know what happened in the department down there, but I was given this kind of co-teacher, a woman that I had had some kind of interactions with in the past. Um, and I was like, okay, she's a known person to me. I don't think this is going to be a problem. Oh, but I was wrong, Matt. I was wrong. Basically, I had somebody teaching over my shoulder the entire summer, chiming in with class issues, giving me her opinion. And I'm like, uh, one, I didn't ask for any of this. Two, again, I've been doing this for more than 10 years. I don't need any of this. Yesterday, I turn in grades. I think, oh, it's got to be done, right? I turn in my grades. Oh, again, Matt, you would be wrong. She sent me an email. Uh, excuse me. Why was this one student allowed to take the quiz after everybody else had taken the quiz? And I'm like, well, you know, we use this shitty content management platform. And, you know, sometimes we get an internet, you know, fuck up. And, you know, I think that day she was babysitting and she had some shit to take care of. Well, I explained that to you and the position uh, that should have been and that you should have taken off points and that it was not fair to the other students. And well, I guess, I guess nothing can be done about it now. That was literally the last email she sent to me. I guess nothing can be done about it now. What the fuck is wrong with you? How, why do you live your life looking for reasons to take points away from students? You know, it's people like you, you that make people hate professors. It's incredible. I don't understand where this comes from. And and Bess... Bess is being disapproving. Oh, my burden feels so much lighter now. I am glad that you could get that off your chest. Oh, that feels good. I just got back from four days at a conference, which is fine. But for those of you out there who don't understand what really introvert and extrovert means, <laughs> there are people who assume, oh, introverts like to be alone all the time, and extroverts like to be around people all the time. That's not really what that means. 
What it really means is where you draw your energy from. There are introverts who are fine being around people, but they also need their downtime. They need to be able to process and deal with everything by themselves in a quiet place. While extroverts get their energy by feeding off of the other people around them. I am a textbook introvert. There's a reason why I work from home. It's not that I dislike people. When I go into the office, I'm genial. I enjoy my coworkers. Four days surrounded by people all day. The energy suck of that. Probably some weird motherfuckers too. You know, many of them are, are very pleasant. I will not deny that there are some unusual, some unusual <laughs> in a pleasant way, some unusual in a less than pleasant way. Oh, I gotta say, I have, as I'm getting older, I'm losing my tolerance for Melvins. Uh, just weird, dangly, awkward motherfuckers. I can't, I can't deal with you anymore. I'm too old for this. So are you saying this is the last episode? I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, no. You're fine, Matt. You're great. You're great. It would be tragic to be like, okay, we hit 100 episodes. Later, losers. Peace. I'm out. This is... That is not going to be the case because, to quote The Simpsons, have no fears. We've got stories for years. Oh, my goodness. We're never going to run out because they keep making new ones. They keep making new ones. We have 80 years worth to begin with. We got plenty to work with. But yes, 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 yes. Holy crap, Brother Will. We actually made it to 100 episodes. Uh, Almost two years of doing podcasts. I am thrilled with this. Yeah, it's it's been a lot of fun. Been two years in this uh, house of mine. Uh, We've recorded in... uh uh jersey we've recorded in uh my i've recorded in miami i've recorded in decatur alabama uh this show just takes me places man i've mostly recorded from here but there have been a couple of times out in out in pennsylvania and visiting the in-laws at least once out in pennsylvania down and locked in my parents basement covid that was a thing uh you've recorded a couple times from your sweat lodge there in your house (laughs) i have I look forward to it being fall again when I I can be back up there where the sound is just perfect. But for now, the dining room is a pleasant place. Bess can wander by and scream at me about, you know, hey, you've been gone for four days. Why aren't you petting me? I love you, boo. Yeah, she's just walking away. She she won't even. But for episode 100, uh, we're we're doing something special because we are looking at what might be the last truly major Batman story that we haven't discussed. We're starting off with a couple of Golden and Silver Age stories that inspired it, but then we'll be discussing Grant Morrison's Batman R.I.P. But to start with, we will be reading some, or discussing some considerably lighter fare. First up is Batman the Superman of Planet X. This is Batman Volume 1, number 113. The writer is Ed Heron, with pencils by Dick Sprang, inks by Charles Paris, no credit colorist, letters by Milt Snappin, edited by Jack Schiff, with a cover date of February of 1958. 
Batman is summoned to the planet Zoranar by a scientist who has modeled himself after Batman to help stop an alien invasion. But there's a twist. On Zoranar, Batman has the powers of Superman. And, you know, this is going to be a theme, uh, at least for these first two stories. Interesting pulls for Grant Morrison. When, when I think of, like, Batman and this era and just weird suits like i think of the rainbow prism thing i don't necessarily think of the zuran r suit um so i don't know where this came from i don't know why this was an inspiration for them but kudos for just like pulling this out here this is almost quintessential 50s batman that was a decade where batman was just super weird collected by the way in batman in the 50s indeed that era is a lot of batman fighting aliens batman fighting gangsters who are in gorilla bodies or have a wacky theme and is where we get a lot of the wider bat family where we get a lot of time with the Kathy Kane Batwoman, with the Betty Kane Batgirl. Batmite first pops up in 59. Comics were in a weirder place then. This was possibly the lowest ebb of the superhero comic than the mid-50s. Superhero comics were big throughout World War II, then declined and picked back up that's the the point where there is a certain degree of debate whether the silver age begins in 61 with fantastic four number one or 58 with showcase number four the first appearance of barry allen but at this point we are right on the tail end of that point where the only superheroes being published were batman superman and wonder woman because dc had sued most other companies into submission and they wanted to maintain the rights on those characters so they had to keep publishing them and this is a a wacky story this is a story that you would not see at any other point of batman history even in the 60s by the mid 60s you can't see even Adam West doing this level of wacky and weird. Yeah, you could dream up some kind of storyline where it's, you know, Batman takes a special Kryptonian tonic and gets Superman powers here on Earth and, you know, lives like Superman for a day and has a fun kind of story with that. But going to another planet and fighting robots and invisible robots... And yeah, that's a bit out there. And I am utterly befuddled by, oh, they're invisible. There's nothing I can do. How can you fight something you can't see? One, you knew where they just were. Two, pick up some paint. Pick up some dust. We all know how to beat invisible things. And if you've got the powers of Superman... I mean, you don't have the x-ray vision, but you got the flight, the strength, the invulnerability. There are plenty of options. Somehow, I guess, going to Zuranar, the great detective part of Bruce's reign went away. And it was just the uh, smashy, smashy part. 
Look, cloaking devices are still good tech in Star Trek, so I don't I don't know what you expect from Batman here. Batman or his Zurinarian counterpart, Tlano, I guess. I that's the only way I can think of pronouncing that. T L A N O. We've talked about it in the column, and this is the first time we've seen it for this show, though. The Zurinar costume is wild. We'll get into more of that when we get to R.I.P., because there, there's all manner of discussion of why that costume is the way it is. And that is obviously, though, Morrison coming up with some justification for why it is a red, purple clashing colors monstrosity for the actual reason i'm pretty sure they just thought it looked neat yeah and they wanted the kids to be able to to, uh to tell the difference yes very very clear difference between these two batman the ending is interesting i like that it's like, oh, that whole thing could have been a dream. Except I still have the bat radia. So it must have been real. The bat radia being the Batman of Zurinar's special gadget, which involves technobabble that would make the best writers of TOS applaud. Because that's some technobabble right there. Ah, but it won't work on your universe. It will just be a trophy for you convenient isn't it it is a a late golden age story so there isn't any real introspection to it which is kind of a shame because the idea of batman with superman's powers is one that would be worth investigating we need to do an episode at some point about stories where batman gets superpowers There are plenty of them, and it would be something that different writers have investigated in different ways. And I'm not talking about Elseworlds. I'm talking about Bruce in the mainstream DC universe temporarily getting powers. I'd have to sit back and think, because that just sort of occurred to me. You know, if people are interested, they can fire up episode 46, where we did stories where Batman gets uh, a Green Lantern ring. That's true. And no, I didn't have to look that up. I knew that. (laughs) But yeah, you're right in that there's no introspection, like you said. There's no, what does this mean? Do I gain a better understanding into Clark? Do I hold these powers back? Do I try to help this planet aside from just destroying the robots? What is my purpose here? You know, there's really none of that. It's just zany sci-fi stuff, which is fine. Yeah. Yeah. For the era, it absolutely fits. The only mention, there's like two mentions of Superman. One, the Batman of Zuranar saying, hey, you've got the powers of Superman. And at one point, Bruce thinking, what would my friend Superman do? And also making it big robots allows him to cut loose. Yes. But also that there's a level of introspection as well that in a modern story would be something you'd do. Him having to figure out how to not break everything around him. There's a great line in the series finale of Justice League Unlimited where Superman is fighting Darkseid and talking about how the world around him is always tissue paper. He has to be so careful to not break everything. So it's nice to be able to cut loose. 
And the ending that, as I mentioned before, where he's sort of like, you know, well, that could have been a dream, very much plays into what Morrison will do later, which might also be one of the things that attracted them to this story. Having that ending where he's like, this could have been a dream, except for this crazy doodad. Perhaps I am not well. This Batman's, and also another thing that would have possibly gotten to Bruce is the fact that he just was subconsciously railroaded into this thing. I'm getting up in the middle of the night. Usually I would be taking Robin out on patrol as well, but I don't think I will tonight. I wonder why I don't feel like it. Huh, I'm going to get in the bat plane. The modern Batman would not take that well. No. Why did you bring me here? I'm not doing anything until you tell me more. Who are these invaders? You took me away from my city. Gotham needs me. I don't need you. Take off that costume. It's ugly and stupid. And the Batman of Zuranar gets no personality, really. He's just, yes, I am a scientist. I was able to observe you, and I have modeled myself after you. Now please help me fight these alien invaders, please. I don't ever leave my cave, because I'm a weenie. And, you know, I mean, we're, we're pointing out all of these deficiencies. They're not flaws, necessarily, because this story isn't trying to be deep. It isn't trying to be anything other than a short entertainment for kids. And at that, it succeeds. Who hasn't dreamed of, boy, wouldn't it be cool to go to another planet? Wouldn't it be cool if I had superpowers? This is childlike wish fulfillment more than anything else. It's big, but in comics. And with a purple and red costume. Just as a note here, I haven't seen big. I mean, that is, I wish I were big. He becomes big. He goes to the big city. He realizes being a kid is still good. He turns back into a kid. I haven't seen big in decades, but any of those type of wish fulfillment stories, any number of body swaps. I was just going to mention that. Yeah, like you don't have to be a genius to figure out where Freaky Friday's going. Yeah. This is a grass is always greener story, only the grass is still pretty green regardless of what side you're on. The episode of Brave and the Bold that was inspired by this is very, very different. Because there's it, there's a story where they do give the Batman of Zurinar a much, much more of a personality. And by the way, that episode, the Super Batman of Planet X, the Batman of Zuranar is voiced by Kevin Conroy. Nice. Yes. It's a fun episode. It's one we probably should do on the bonus pod at some point soon. It takes a lot of the stuff that we're saying here, since it's a completely different story other than, hey, there's a, a Batman in a crazy costume from another planet and does some very different things with that and builds a very different story. Also, it's very obvious there that they're doing much more of a Superman riff because it's an alien Lex Luthor as his nemesis. And we got a lot of Vicky Vale, uh, an alien Vicky Vale as the love interest. And let's be fair, Vicky Vale as Batman's love interest is really like, Lois Lane works. 
So let's let's go with that. As we said when we covered that first appearance of Vicky Vale, who will be appearing on the new Superman cartoon next week as we're recording. Hmm. As the, the seasoned reporter that intern Lois Lane looks up to. Hmm. The new Superman cartoon, very good, very enjoyable. I did not expect Jack Quaid as Superman to work as well as it did. Like I was like, I was pretty sure he'd be a good Clark, but I wasn't sure how great a Superman he would be, but he's doing a good job in nowhere in the world that I ever expect Chris fricking Parnell as Deathstroke, the Terminator to work, but it does. That is an interesting choice. Yeah. Wait, he's Cyril. I want Deathstroke. <laughs> Suppressing fire. Suppressing fire. But no, so far it's really worked and the anime animation style of it suits the story they're telling. It's good. And I'm curious with bringing in Vicky Vale, if they're going to start hinting at a wider world of superheroes and maybe some Batman because mm. everything's better with Batman. Well, we're, we're a Batman podcast. We're supposed to say that. Very true. I will say the uh, super Batman of planet X rolls off the tongue much much more easily than the what is it the this is batman the superman of planet x yeah that's that's a bit clunkier shit's in this back for branding but you know nobody expected to actually have to say any of that out loud when they were <laughs> doing this in 1958 ah nobody's gonna remember this a month from now yeah we you know we we refresh our audiences every five years i don't think there's much more here the pretty basic little story fun weird colorful yeah. basic oh that means it's time to put the batman the superman of planet x batman number 113 on the big board we are at 297 stories and by the end of tonight we'll be at 300 but for the moment story number one is the post-crisis origin of Batman, Batman Year One. Story 50 is the Sword of Azrael miniseries. Coming at a sexy 69, it's Batman Adventures number 15, Badge of Honor. Number 100 is Super Friends, the Batman Adventures number 25. We got 150, Batman Year 100, the Paul Pope Elseworlds. 200 is Death Cast the Deciding Vote and the Silent Night of Batman, Batman 219. 250 is Batmite's New York Adventure, the weird little one shot where Batmite invades the DC offices. And hey, 297, Curse of the White Knight. Oh, still awful. We don't have really much of anything exactly in this year span because we've done stuff from the 40s and the, maybe the early 50s. We've done stuff from the 60s. We haven't really done any of this weird science fiction Batman era stuff. But this is not as good or as enjoyable as 204, the Joker's Comedy of Errors. Uh, no, this is not Joker's Boner. It's a perfectly good trifle. Nothing wrong with it. Just not much to it. Right. I think it is somewhere in between Joker's Comedy of Errors at 204 and Commissioner Gordon Walks a Beat at 224. 
I was going to ask you to justify yourself, but I think you were just about to do that. That story is equally sort of ridiculous with the mobster who takes ridiculous bets on anything. But there's a charm to this. This is a bigger swing than that. Although maybe reading more stories around it, maybe it's not. It's been so long since I've read a lot of the 50s Batman stuff. It is an era that you mostly don't read. That's the height of also Superman doing weird stuff like this. But it works a little better with Superman because he's, you know, Superman. Yeah, this is not something that you can find easily in the digital singles. So that's a a sign that DC doesn't place any big uh, importance on it. So mm-hmm. you're you're thinking maybe below Gordon walks a beat, yeah, because it's got a story to it. It's a, a a more grounded story. We'll say that. All right, but I don't think it's too far below that. Okay, actually, slightly later and actually adjacent to our next story, two thirty seven, the Great Joker Clayface feud. That is probably better because that's wild and joker doing clayface crime clayface doing joker crimes a a good role for batwoman and batgirl although i think a right shortly below that is probably where we're looking because we we start getting into really meh to problematic territory shortly below that around 242 ish or flawed deeply flawed stuff around there and i don't think this is that no, I know you have a soft spot for the JLA at 238. So how about we put this as the new 239? Yeah, I think that is a good spot for it. You have a distinct lack of patience for the uh, Plastic Man hijinks of that particular story and Plastic Man stories in general. And I respect Fucking that. Joe Kelly. Our second story is Robin Dies at Dawn. This is Batman Volume 1, number 156. The writer is Bill Finger, with pencils by Sheldon Maldoff, inks by Charles Paris, no colorist is credited, letters by Stan Starkman, and edited by Jack Schiff. The cover date is June of 1963. Batman awakens, confused, on an alien world, Soon, Robin joins him in the hostile environs, full of monsters and other threats. When Robin is killed, Batman seemingly breaks. But all is not what it seems. And when Batman awakens from the delusion on Earth, can he put himself back together and become Batman again? I'll start by briefly saying that charming story included in this issue Robin alternately teams up with and then later fights Ant-Man. Yeah, I don't know when Ant-Man, the Marvel version, made his first appearance. I'd meant to look that up. And the thing I know with looking that up is that Hank Pym made his first appearance as just a science character before he was Ant-Man. Oh, no, no, he predates this. That was June of 62 was Hank Pym's first appearance as Ant-Man. He first appeared as just Hank Pym as a scientist in September of 61. But I also think that that's a name that it's kind of hard to copyright. And also, I don't think they cared as much for a one-off character. I mean, there's 
still fighting over the Captain Marvel. Well, I don't think they started fighting over the Captain Marvel name yet, but that that is on its way. But the uh, the origin for DC's Ant-Man is that we have a gangster who is presumed dead. His body is dumped downriver from uh, from a scientist who's working on shrinking potions. And uh, our little mobster wakes up shrunk. And he's like, I'm going to use this to do crimes, but then pretend to be a hero. Which we've seen with Deadshot and the Cavalier and any number of other bat rogues who pretend to be good guys to commit crimes. Foolproof. Absolutely. After the Ant-Man story, which interestingly does play into this story, it's rare in these Silver Age stories where the two features in a book actually interact with each other. They're usually completely self-contained stories. We then have to find out why Robin had to be doing this whole thing alone, because Batman is nowhere to be found. And that is where we get to Robin Dies at Dawn. This, by the way, is another one of those stories from that 1989 Greatest Batman Stories Ever Told trade. This one is a well-established classic. And for a story from 1963 from DC, this does hit some pretty heavy stuff. Batman having doubt, Batman having consequences for what he's done and the decisions that he's made. Oh my God. Batman having to face loss and sacrifice and mental instability. Like, this is craziness. Even saying, you know, Robin died, even though he doesn't really die, talking about death in 1960s DC comics, other than the Waynes, nobody dies. And then to have a Batman so broken that he says, oh, I just want to die. I deserve to die. Like, man, that gets super dark. Yeah. It's been a while since I'd read this one. I was like, wow, I forgot suicidal Batman. That's intense. And it's stronger for it. And the art here is really neat. Sheldon Maldoff does some really cool creature designs. Both the giant stone idol and the big lizard thing look really cool. Yeah, the lizard slash grub thing. But this is also still the 60s. So as is always important, no comic cannot be made better by adding gorillas. Even if they're just guys in gorilla suits for no reason. Well, look, see, here's the deal, you know. If you wear a gorilla costume, nobody's going to know who you are. It's smart, smart criming. I suppose. But it's a lot more difficult to blend in when you're also in a gorilla seat. That's true. So you need to rob a bank where everybody at the bank is in a gorilla suit. A professional in a gorilla mask is still a professional. Yes. Damn, I'm trying to remember what episode of The Simpsons... Oh, that's uh, the one where Krusty has to fake his own death because he gets caught for tax evasion. Classic. Mm -hmm. And for this era, it's also not that common where you get a story where Robin really has to step up because Batman's out of it here. And Robin has to try to find some cure for Batman's mental instability or face crime fighting on his own. 
And just to make it clear, the reason Batman is having these delusions is because he has spent, at this point, they don't say how many, but an unknown number of days, we will learn eventually that it is 10 days, in an isolation tank for experiments to determine the effects of isolation on astronauts. Space medicine. And that's very topical for 1963. That's height of the space race. There's the the height of the space race a little later as we're getting closer to landing on the moon. Uh, Let's see what Sputnik's in 57. Yep. And John Glenn is a few years after that. John Glenn's before this. John Glenn orbits the Earth February 20th, 1962. So, yes, we are really in the height of the space race because John Glenn would have just circled the Earth. This is when space is a much more prevalent thing in society. You've got two unknown figures here, or maybe not unknown, but unnamed figures with a general and a doctor. And since this is the first time since I've read this one since the Morrison run, I don't know if I read that doctor as somewhat sinister the first time, but this time I sure as shooting did. Yeah, it was uh, a bit reinterpreted for you now, wasn't he? Yeah, but there's at least one or two panels where he's seems to be getting some real glee out of Batman's experiences. Oh, this is interesting. This is interesting for science. science no i think you're kind of getting off on batman's suffering here i can see why someone would interpret you as evil well i mean that's what scientists are matt they are little assholes some more than others i was impressed at how serious a story this is for its time period morrison does reinterpret this in their run But I could see this whole thing being reinterpreted in the same way that the first Joker story is and giving it even more gravitas. But it doesn't need that much of a push. No, because it's about such a basic, you know, idea, trauma, for lack of a better word, and dealing with that. If this comic was made today, we would say Batman had post-traumatic stress disorder from that isolation period. Up to and including a point where he's so traumatized, he's having these nightmares. And it's like, why don't you have Ace, the Bathound, sleep in here with you so you don't feel as lonely? That's sad. Yeah, that's really sad. Oh, he's his, his doggy. Poor Batman. Ace has a lot to do in this story, though. Nice to see an Ace the Bat Hound story where Ace has, you know, some stuff to do. That and helping Batman find Robin. The, Camphor Flakes. The ending would have to be fleshed out a little more. I do like the idea that Robin has been captured by the Gorilla Gang. Also, the Gorilla Gang would need probably a better name because Gorilla Gang is a little on the nose. A wee bit. But they're about to kill him and Batman saves him and doesn't panic when he could have by these ropes seeming to be the tentacles of the tentacle plants from the alien world of his delusion. And he's like, yeah, you know, seeing you actually in peril meant that I had to basically I had to man up. Yeah, I had to had to stop feeling sorry for myself, had to stop feeling a little pansy. 
that in itself is not a bad way for Bruce to come out of this, but that here was a bit surface. Yeah. This story doesn't get deeply into any of these issues, but addressing any of them in 1963 means Bill Finger deserves a pat on the back for doing something that was more than just Batman chasing after the Joker or going to Zurinar. Batman is like, he's hallucinating in this story. How often, and of course, I'd say how often does that happen, but we're about to get into another story where, oh boy, does that happen. But again, for 63, DC heroes were not infallible because, I mean, how many Superman stories is Superman affected by red kryptonite and does something weird? But they don't have this level of, as you said, trauma. Him having to be like, oh, what, Robin's been kidnapped? I have to do it. I have to get back in costume. He's making a hard choice. And it's, again, treated with gravity. And this is not really dwelt on because just not the space to do it. Like, he actually hangs up the cowl. He says, I have to stop. We don't see that very often. No. And Morrison calls back to that and uses that actual dialogue at the end of R.I.P., And so I have to imagine that even if they picked up a bunch of this stuff from research, this one strikes me as a story that even if they didn't read it when it first came out, I don't think they would have. They encountered this story and it left a mark. This is even more than Zurinar, probably the story that most influences that run. I must put away my Batman costume and retire from crime fighting is the exact line. What did we just say? Uh, This book was 61? 63. Uh, Morrison would have been three. So definitely couldn't have read it when it first came out, but might have encountered it as a back issue or something that, you know, a friend had or something like that early on. But I mean, I read this when I was nine. Because I read it in the greatest Batman stories ever told. I've never forgotten the panels as the gorilla gang's car is bearing down on Batman. And instead of jumping out of the way, he freezes because it morphs into the lizard grub thing from the alien planet. And he's frozen. Not just frozen. He says again, let it come. I don't want to live. It's my fault Robin died. I don't want to live harsh yeah and this just emphasizes batman's greatest fear his greatest regret is robin dying i think that has been there at least from this point and everyone who has a knowledge of the character's history has played with that and it's why we will read more stories from the period between 1988 and 2005 when Jason returns from the dead and it is amazing how important that was and how little it gets thought of now that Jason is back from the dead and how almost like his death is is retconned in such a way like like right our lasting memory from his death is the crowbar and it's not the crowbar it's the explosion (laughs) and then you know we've talked about death in the family before but just the idea that that story ends 
with Joker claiming diplomatic immunity. Like, so bonkers. It astounds me that they didn't treat that moment with really the seriousness that it deserved. And it's not like Jim Starlin is a writer who doesn't know how to do that. You read his his Marvel work, the Warlock stuff especially, and he has blended the absurd with the serious before, but there the absurdity more had to do with like mental illness and like delusions and such not thanos is now the new galactic representative from titan so the avengers and captain marvel and adam warlock can't do anything to him when he arrives on earth darn i would love to find out where that plot beat came from i'm sure there's an interview somewhere somebody has to have asked him starlin so the Ayatollah Khomeini, huh? So Batman's natural reaction would be to break the one rule. And if he knows that breaking the rule becomes an international incident, maybe that can somehow justify not killing Joker? I, I don't know. That's the only thing I got right now. Have you ever read Under the Hood, the story where Jason returns from the dead? We have talked about it, but I don't think I have. Seems like if I have, I would have remembered it. Because there you get to the end and there Bruce more or less says when Jason's like, you know, why didn't you kill him? Because where do you stop? Once you've crossed that line, it gets easier. And so I I can't bring myself to do it, even for him. There's all sorts of questions about whether or not that is really a justification. But we're straying afield from the story we are here to discuss. We will discuss Under the Hood and more stories involving Jason's memory and the the sadness that Bruce carries at some point in the future. And the next story is going to take some time to discuss. I will say this as a final thought. I think a Batman with guilt, with a sense of loss, is a much more interesting Batman. And that's one reason why I was drawn to the Batfleck interpretation of the character. He was older he had lost that Robin. There was that nice sense of weariness to him. But then, you know, we'll just have a couple of dick jokes in the flash about it and it'll be fine. Uh, you got anything else, Brother Matt? I am good. I believe that's time. But Batman number 156, Robin dies at dawn on the big board. This is up considerably from Super Batman of Planet X. We're definitely somewhere probably in the mid hundreds or even maybe into the closer to 100 region we've got batman number 47 at 118 and uh, i just have that uh, labeled as batman chill out because i thought that that was funnier than whatever the actual title was the origin uh, of batman yeah i think it's very close to that so i would probably be Closer to 100 than to 150. Because just like the origin of Batman, this is a story with some depth. This is a story with some seriousness to it. So when we get into that area, above that origin of Batman, there's an interesting question. I'm going to give you a range. Okay. I do not think this is better than 93. The first Legends of the Dark Knight special, 
the one with the scarecrow and the black widow the woman who's killing her husband's trying to play bruce wayne and bruce thinking about loneliness but i think anywhere between there and 100 i think this is more tangible more serious and granted seriousness doesn't always make for a better story we have plenty of serious stories that are down at the bottom but this is a classic and i think it is a stronger book than super friends where batman meets the animated superman for the first time on page i'll narrow that down just a little bit i think it's better than batman dmnt volume one at 99 here's our question this is either gonna be the new 94 or the new 95. I love A Lonely Place of Living, that tiny and Tim Drake story. But A, that is very much a Tim Drake story. And it also plays off of some of the stuff here. Because again, that is when Batman thought he lost another Robin. And I don't know if that lands as well without this as the foundation of that idea. Above that is Where Are You the Night Batman Was Killed? which is delightful, but is not a serious story at all. New 94, then. New 94. And I think that makes it the highest story from the Silver Age that we have so far. And I think that's appropriate. Everything above that is Bronze Age or... Oh, no, one story higher, the first Joker story. Oh, yeah, there it is, right there at 76. That one and one other kind of contemporary 67, the first appearance of uh, Barbara Gordon. Again, very important book. But that's even that's a little later. That's the very late 60s. But now now we're on to the main event for the night. For now, it is time to finally discuss Batman R.I.P. This is Batman Volume 1, numbers 676 to 681 and DC Universe number zero. The writer is Grant Morrison, with pencils by Tony S. Daniel, inks by Sandro Floria, colors by Guy Major, letters by Randy Gentile and Jared K. Fletcher, and edited by Janine Schaefer, Mike Martz, and Janelle Aslan. The cover dates are June to December of 2008. The time has come. Dr. Hurt, The Black Glove, and The Club of Villains make their move to destroy Batman. His allies under assault, his mind broken, Batman must face down the greatest threat that has ever come to Gotham. Do you see now why you needed to have read everything before this, in this run, before you got to this story? Yes, and I do understand also probably needing to have read Batman, uh, what was that one? The, the Whatever the stories we just read tonight. I forget exactly where Resurrection of Rachel Ghoul fits into this because the trades have that as a lot of the other stuff we've already read in book one. Resurrection of Rache is book two, and RIP is book three. The order of the Morrison run is Batman and Son. So your your four-part introduction of Damien, the clown at midnight, mm-hmm. the alpha male plus Batman. The Club of Heroes, The Resurrection of Rachel Ghoul, Batman Dies at Dawn, and then R.I.P. Interesting. Everything but Resurrection of Rachel Ghoul is collected in that first trade. 
Yeah, because Resurrection Official Ghoul doesn't matter. That first book is also 350 pages. Oh, I have little doubt. I just, I do not understand what the purpose of the resurrection of Rachel Ghoul was. We talked about it at the time. It didn't forward Morrison's plot any particularly. Paul Dini just locked Rache up at the end. Other than wanting to have a crossover amongst the Bat titles, I don't know what the purpose of that story was. Uh, sounds like it's to have a crossover in the Bat titles. Pretty much, yeah. But I promised that I was going to reread all of the stuff to this point, and I did, and I enjoyed it a lot more this time. I will say, though, you're you're never going to get me on board with Damien. I don't know that you tried. He still feels like a weird, strange, bizarre character thrown into this. I don't like his petulance. I don't like this mix of the petulance and him being a lethal homicidal uh, maniac. It's it's just a weird off-putting character. And I don't like Bruce's reaction to him. Like, oh, okay, I got a kid now. Oh, he just tried to murder one of my adopted wards? Oh, okay, that's that's cool. Beyond adopted ward, Tim is his adopted son. Flat out, he adopted him at the end of the arc leading into this, which we'll be reading next week, by the way. The last pre-Morrison, pre-Dini arc is one of our books for next week. But yeah. we'll, we'll get there. We no. never said we were going to take him up in order. No, no, we weren't. We we played a theme. <laughs> and that is not by Morrison or Dini. It, we'll, we'll get there. No, Damien, through this arc, is horrid and i don't think morrison was trying to make him likable i think that's what makes the stuff in batman and robin important because that's where we start seeing actual growth in damien when we've already covered the first arc of that we'll have to reread that one before we get into the following arcs because morrison's has two other issues of Batman. And then there's a bunch of fill-ins until after Battle for the Cowl, which also isn't Morrison. Battle for the Cowl is Tony Daniel's story in art. Morrison does the next two issues that are the tie into Final Crisis while doing Final Crisis. And then we have, uh, I think Denny does some fill-ins and then whatever happened to the Cape Crusader before we get into the Dick Bat stuff. But we're dealing with all manner of preamble and surrounding stuff without discussing this story. And this is, I think, my third time reading R.I.P.? Third or fourth? Third, probably. And every time I read it, I pick up more, and it's less of a, a mindfuck. Mm-hmm. I will tell you, reading this month to month was not easy oh no no there were people doing the annotations thing online for this and you needed them but when you read it in one go it flows really well and it tells a logical story of ways a villain who sat back and did the thing that people always say Batman does to Batman. They planned and they prepared and they were ready and then they made their move. Only as Morrison says at the beginning of the final part 
of this story, that's the thing about Batman. Batman thinks of everything. But I will also point out that Batman knew this was coming. Batman prepared. People accuse Morrison of the Bat God, the Batman who is so hyper-prepared that you can't surprise him. Batman can still be surprised, but if Batman knows you're coming, you're boned. And that's exactly what this story proves. If Hurt hadn't made that play in Nanda Parbat that we find out about in the last part of the story, he might have had a better shot at this. But you come at the king, you best not miss. The beat that I was a little probably puzzled by is Jezebel Jet's just such sudden heel turn. I wish that had been foreshadowed more. Short of her name. Yeah. Both the Jezebel and Jet. There's a specific, I want to make sure I'm getting this right. I mean, yeah, literally an immoral woman who deceives Jet Black and her hair. Again, There's it's red and black that she is right the hint is there if you're looking for it when you're looking for the red and the black as the pattern that the black glove is playing there is a hint to it it's not right out of left field but while she does not fall into that same trope that drives me crazy when it came to natalia the cellist or um, Rachel Caspian, the Bruce met these people two weeks or a month ago, and he's willing to throw everything away for them. A, he never seems to be looking to throw away being Batman to be with her. And also, this has been a slow build. She's been there since the first part of Batman and Son. So it's been a developing relationship. But it was also never a relationship that was front and center. And I I completely understand where you're coming from with her heel turn. But I think it was one of Morrison's more subtle twists. And if they had made it more obvious, it wouldn't have had any impact. Because I think everyone was waiting for her to turn. Because anyone Batman loves is either going to turn out to be a villain and leave him is going to get sick of Bruce Wayne being a dink or is going to find out and want nothing to do with him. So it's or one get of their th- brain scrambled. Right. Oh yeah, true. Except for Selena. But even then there's the whole villain hero thing with them. This is a, a story that it is hard to figure out exactly all the points to talk about because so much happens and it's hard to talk about it in a non-linear fashion but we also don't want to sit here and be like and on this page this happens and on this page that happens this is the ultimate example of batman overcoming impossible odds And Morrison did a really good job in how they made those odds stacked so against him. Yes, Nightfall does something similar, but their Bane, it's not hyper-preparedness of Bane. It's Bane just being, I'm just going to keep throwing shit at the wall and seeing what sticks. 
I'm going to just open Arkham and just let it go to town. Here, Hurt has built this elaborate, as he repeatedly addresses it, a dance macabre. The entire thing is this slow build to bring Bruce down. And he has all of these different players involved. I do at times wish we had gotten a little more understanding of who the members of the Black Glove were. But I also think it didn't matter. They were just these people who were so rich and so powerful that they were above it all. And so I think if we had spent a lot of time being like, ah, this guy is this person, it gets to the point where you're like, okay, well, this is clearly an analog for this real world figure. And that's not what this was about. This wasn't about something so specific. So making them not literally faceless, but mostly faceless figures works better in what Morrison was trying to do. I was thinking briefly about how to retcon them into being the Court of Owls. I'm sure somebody's thought about that already. I'm sure someone is someday going to find a way to connect the Court of Owls to the Black Love through Dr. Hurt. Because Hurt, well, no, no, spoilers. Oh, spoilers. I'm going to avoid that for now. But there's stuff about what we learn about Hurt down the line and what we eventually learn about the Court of Owls that could somehow connect them. Hurt's delusions, possible truths, do tie into Lincoln Marches. Yes, we will see more about exactly who and what Hurt is before Morrison is done with the character. Interesting. Okay, I can wait. And it's interesting with your reaction to not liking the way Bruce treats Damien or how he accepts Damien so quickly. I think the one unguarded moment he has around Jezebel is when she's talking to him in the Batcave and ramping him up, which, again, knowing her heel turn makes more sense that she mm-hmm. was preparing him for that break. When he's talking to her and she says something to him about Tim and his reaction to Damien and him feeling out in the cold, that isn't her turn of phrase. But Bruce says something about, I never intended. And I think that might have been an unguarded moment that Bruce never expected him trying to accept Damien as part of his life to affect him in that way. And I think her calling that out affected him and he let him have that one unguarded moment. I mean, he says it at the end. He knew this was coming the whole time. Reading this again, I wish someone would bring back Le Basu. Of all of the club of villains, most of whom are pretty one-note characters, they spent so much time making Le Basu this really layered character with this I wear a mask of ugliness to reflect my soul because my form is handsome, but I am a monster underneath Miss He keeps calling Joker master the entire time. And then Joker, of course, okay, well, you think you're like that? Let me make the outside reflect the inside. But it's fascinating and something that Morrison plays with where he calls Joker master and then... Oh, Dr. Hurt makes the biggest mistake you possibly can. When he sees Joker, he quotes the parable of the talents. 
my good and faithful servant. Here's a tip. Never, ever call the Joker your servant. No, I would not do that. And I mean, Joker calls it out at the end when he starts making his escape. He says, you shouldn't have done that. And it's absolutely perfect and fitting that the Joker is the person who had the most faith in Batman of anyone. He was the one who always knew that Batman would come out ahead in this. Oh, he is going to dig out of that grave and he's going to come in here and fuck you guys up. And don't worry, I'll be by to collect on those bets. There are things that I know that are coming that I don't want to spoil because there are mysteries coming up in Batman and Robin. I want to let you experience it without those spoilers. So good to me, Matt. We've talked about it in the column because we've read Failsafe. Morrison's idea of the backup personality that is Zuranar is such a freaking cool idea. And the whole issue leading up to that with a delusional Bruce talking to a person who isn't there. Again, we don't see a Batman who hallucinates when not on, you know, fear toxin that often. And this is a very different sort of delusion. This is him creating someone to help get him through and get him prepared for when Zurinar is going to take its place. Visually, I think I wanted a bit more something like masks, maybe. We see the Zurinar costume, I think, as Bruce sees it. And we don't see it so much as how the rest of the world sees it. And I think that would put the delusion more front and center or the self-brain conditioning, however we want to phrase it. That would be my one kind of ask for just the visual storytelling here. But yeah, when Zurinar is on the page, it is fascinating, especially as Batmite also starts to work in here. And we get to that point in the story where the Batmite is like, I, I can't go any farther. You're on your own now. I love. So are you a fifth dimensional imp or are you a figment of my imagination? The fifth dimension is the imagination. Some world's greatest detective you are. A very Morrisonian concept. And something they've played with in works down the line and multiversity and things like that. There is so much in this story and so many layers. And it redeems a lot of the stuff that Morrison had done with Tim in that Tim had been sort of lost in this run and so here he's the one who avoids the club of villains he's the one who keeps going and who calls in the club of heroes just as they need to and i like the way tim is treated in this story you mentioned it briefly but hurts delusion truth whatever it is that he is thomas wayne If you were going to fuck with Batman, that is the way to do it. Yep. And it was foreshadowed at the very beginning in the first sequence in the present here where Lebassou kills some guy and hurts like, oh yeah, don't worry about it. We've planted evidence that he was a suicide and this and that and the other thing. So the Black Glove plays these games. 
So preparing that, it's set up. And again, I mentioned this when we did Batman and Robin 1 to 3, but the bookends of this story, the six months earlier, six months later bits with Lebesu at the beginning and end, all take place right at the last page of Batman and Robin number three. That is six months later. Morrison had the whole thing planned out. So the Batman and Robin can never die at the beginning of this is Dick and Damien's, the end of their first major outing as Batman and Robin. That's some good planning. And I love the last page. I love that last page and we see all the flashbacks in that last issue done in black scale and red which plays off the themes that we see throughout this from the beginning with joker and the black and red but leaving the mask of zorro and thomas's line about i think we had him in gotham they put zorro in arkham zor and r i love it this is why i love morrison's work it rewards careful reading and rereading. And there's just so many layers to all of these stories. And if I had been smarter, we would have read this in order from the beginning. I'm glad I caught on early enough, but Club of Heroes is now a better story, I assume, to you for having the context. It's still too many people for me to keep track of. I wish the first two-page spread of the Club of Villains in here, I wish there had been little Chirons with their names. Yeah, I will say that the Three Ghosts of Batman is is much better now. And having read Robin Dies at Dawn, you know, where that's so critical to that story. Even Clown at Midnight was better. And the motif, the red and black that runs through this entire story. And the moment when the Batman of Zuranar is talking to Batmite and the two gargoyles. And they talk about how Gotham is built on a grid. And you see him looking at it. Yes, it's all green, but it's a checkerboard. It's black and red. Even if he's seeing it in green, you know that's a checkerboard, which is more black and red. Mm-hmm. The roses that come back here and their first appearance in Clown at Midnight. And also, we should say that if the events of Clown at Midnight hadn't happened, if Morrison hadn't been like, okay, I need Joker to split away from Harley Quinn, I don't know if we would have gotten the evolution we've gotten on Harley since. Because without a major force initially breaking them apart to let Harley have her own stories, people would have just kept telling the same Joker and Harley stories. Mm-hmm. You think Paul Dini would have done just Harley solo stories, guest starring Detective Comics, if Morrison hadn't set the beat of Joker is sort of off the board in Arkham right now and has said he isn't interested in these sidekicks anymore. I'm not giving Morrison the credit for doing the heavy lifting. That's on Palmiotti and Connor. But Morrison doing what they did in Clown at Midnight allowed for Harley to have Gotham City Sirens and then the Palmiotti and Connor run. I think I hit all of the major stories because again, we see we had to have read the first Batman for when Dr. Hurt puts on that costume. That was Thomas Wayne's Batman costume. 
I tried to hit all of the stories that they were heavily referencing by this point. Matt, do you think I recognized and understood that that was Thomas Wayne's costume when it happened as oh. I'm reading it? Uh, yes, I, I <laughs> did. I did not understand that until there's the line of, yeah, I'm really upset that my dad's bat costume is at the bottom of the river now. I was like, oh, so that's what he was wearing. You read the the next two issues as well? 682 and 683? Uh, yeah, they're collected in the RIP trade. Okay. Did not understand what the fuck was going on in there. Those need to be read with Final Crisis because those are taking place in between the panels of Final Crisis. We will probably, the next thing Morrison we do will be Final Crisis and those two issues. Final Crisis is seven issues. There's those two, and there's two issues called Superman Beyond that are by Morrison, and you kind of need to read those to get the whole story, too. We'll have to figure out a a time to do that, because there's 11 issues, and many of them are Chunky Boys. Chunky Boys. So we could do that with the next two-issue No Man's Land arc, but also throwing in six issues of Injustice might make for a bit of a heavier week. But Injustice does go down smooth. It does. Tom Taylor does not want to make you think too hard, and I appreciate that. Final Crisis is there to make you think. Uh, Especially the last issue, which is non-linear. Of course. Uh, That's a story for another time. I have very few real quibbles about this story other than the you know again wanting to have all the club of villains names at the beginning and wishing dick had a little more to do here because he gets taken out pretty easily and then is just in arkham yeah under duress oh yeah another one of the things i'm just thinking the roulette wheels throughout again black and red it's all there. I love it. I love how well structured this story is. I can't remember what we were reading where I think it was the last time we were doing Morrison, the difference between structure and form. And again, Morrison is many things and Morrison can do a story that is formalist, but form follows structure with Morrison not vice versa. Mm. One thing I was uh, surprised is the wrong word. Interested maybe in this RIP trade, they got some notes and whatnot in the back. Morrison in this, in these notes to Daniel has basically fully formed layouts. All right. It was not just a script, but he was like, Oh, here's, you know, kind of what I think it should look like. And turns out at least in that one example, that is what was produced. I would love to know if, all of Morrison's scripts are that detailed or if there is room for negotiation. I mean, I know Alan Moore gives you like paragraphs of description. And I know Gaiman produced Sandman in a similar fashion. Most of it is very detailed. But I would be curious to see more of these scripts. And and these were like sketched out layouts. I want to make sure that it's Morrison's Daniel and not Daniel and Morrison, but that's, I'm pretty sure that's what I saw. Yeah. Hi, Tony. The layout for the pages should be a little like this. You don't have to follow it slavishly. 
as long as the checkerboard back and forward effect works. Thanks, Grant. And they are fully sketched out. I could see that if it's got to have that checkerboard effect, which again, respect. And I love aces and eights. Again, it was another one of these things like, oh, that's so cool. It's a dead man's hand. I love it. I love just how all these little elements are in there. It's just so impressive. There's that one sequence where uh, Lebesu is showing Joker Rorschach blots. And I, I would like to think that a newscaster going mad Joker toxin on air has to be an 89 reference. Even if it's the male newscaster this time. I want to say that that was Morrison calling out 89. Because very little, I think, is coincidence when you're dealing with Grant Morrison. There was a line in Clown at Midnight that made me think it was a call out. Like Joker's ringmaster from Hell phase seemed very reminiscent of 89. And at least that kind of aesthetic between that and Returns. I think we should wrap up. I mean, we could spend all night going through all of the little intricacies of this story, but we have one more bit of business after ranking. Oh, that means it's time for Batman R.I.P. on the big board. Story number 300. Story number 300. Batman Dies at Dawn is at 54. This is higher. I want you to give me your ceiling and I want to see what kind of negotiation we might work from where your ceiling is. 17. No higher than 17? No higher than 17. Mask gives me what I want. But I could be I could be talked up. See, my ceiling is a tick higher than that. Not much. Okay. My ceiling was 14. My ceiling is Strange Apparitions because Strange Apparitions was innovative. And so is this. But this is a standing on the shoulders of giants thing. You wouldn't have gotten RIP necessarily without Strange Apparitions, which doesn't always mean that a story is better. A story can obviously be better than its influences. But Strange Apparitions takes such a big swing. And it may be a thing with Mask versus Dark Victory that maybe Mask and Dark Victory should have been swapped because I love Dark Victory, but Dark Victory is a sequel. Yeah, it's no long Halloween. Right. So I think this is better than Dark Victory. I'm not sure if it's better than Mask, though. And I think that is a flaw in how we ranked those. That is a very good point. We will be at some point in the not-too-distant future doing some re-ranking. So that might be an item to discuss at that point. But that's why I think this might be a case of, and I don't want to re-rank now, but if we were discussing a re-ranking, that Mask would become 15, this would be 16, and Dark Victory would be 17, with Arkham Asylum right in there. This is more ambitious than almost anything else on this list. See, that's the thing. I think the top 10 are the only things that are as ambitious as this story. 
this belongs in the very top because of its ambition. Mm-hmm. And I think most of the things at the very top are that ambitious or are so affecting that they wound up up here. And that this particular case, I'm specifically speaking of some of these days, but everything else in the top 20 are ambitious stories, which is why I think this belongs that high. And it's building on all of these pieces that Morrison has put together. I don't know if the Morrison run as a whole would be the greatest Batman story ever told. And I'm talking everything from Batman and Son all the way through the end of Incorporated. I don't think it quite gets to be the greatest Batman story ever told, but I think that might be because editorial fucked around. As is its want. If the new 52 hadn't happened and completely screwed the momentum of the run, there was potential for this to be the greatest Batman run of all time. And it's still probably one of the three greatest Batman runs of all time. But I think it lost out on the top spot because DC editorial or can be a bunch of fuckheads. Ah, uh, yes. Now, I would also take splitting the difference, but I feel like this belongs above Dark Victory. Okay, I can live with that. With the understanding that we will consider when we do a re-ranking Mask as one of the stories to be re-ranked. So the new 15? The new 15. All right. Now, usually, this would be where I would say we are calling it a night. But I put out a call on our Patreon and on Twitter to see if we had any listener questions for the 100th episode. And unsurprisingly, as Twitter is fast burning down, we got no responses on Twitter. But... Our loyal patrons gave us some listener questions. Ah, once again, the heroes come through. So we are going to look at a few questions from our most loyal and beloved patrons. So first up, not at all ironically, is our first patron. A question from guest of the show and my best friend of literally 30 years and his question and as i said when i asked these questions was you know you could ask about batman you could ask about star trek you could ask about anything geeky and we'd we'd go in and so our loving patrons took us up on that and i glanced at these but i did not do a ton of thinking on them because i wanted to discuss or the the question from dan which members of the Bat family wear which color Starfleet uniforms? Parentheses, I assume Jason is a red shirt. Congrats on 100 episode, my brothers. Well, uh, thank you, Dan. Thank you. Uh, we have to decide first whether we're talking TOS era or TNG era because, importantly, gold and red switch in those two generations because in TOS... Gold is command and red is engineering slash uh, operations. In TNG, red is command and gold is security and operations. So we have to decide what era we're talking about here. 
with Dan's somewhat appropriate comment about Jason being a red shirt, I think we're going with TOS. Okay, so uh, Batman is gold. Absolutely. Alfred is blue. Yes. Sciences. As is Tim and Barbara. Yes. They are Jason old. would be red. I believe Dick would probably be as well. And here, by the way, is a sort of out of left field character. But this is a distinct and important difference for me. Harper Rowe is red, not blue, because Harper is an engineer. Yes. Tim and Barbara are scientists. They're computer scientists. Harper is an engineer. So Harper is in red. Cassandra is in red. Cassandra and Jason security, which is red in this era. Uh, who would be a helmsman? Dick would actually, I think actually Dick would be in gold. Dick is first officer material. But Spock was the first officer and he was blue. True. But I think Dick is in a command. Dick is the leader of the Titans. Dick, during the Dick Bat phase, was leader of the Justice League. Fair, 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 fair. Luke Fox. I think Luke Fox is your helmsman. Gold. Yeah. I mean, again, he he also has some science background, but it's not exclusive. I mean, again, the, the, the fact that engineering is in red and not blue is a funny little quirk there. Because engineering is a, a very specific science. It's a hard science. It's not a, a soft, researchy science. It's a practical science. And then let's see. Uh, weapons officer. They would also be in gold. Well, that's the question, isn't isn't would that be Jason? No, Jason's a secure Jason's a brawler. Jason's getting down there and going down to the planet and punching shit. Lucius, I think, would be gold. Yeah, I agree. Tim at science, Babs at communication, but again, doing like the strange new worlds Uhura, not just the unfortunately often just sitting there and being the space receptionist from TOS Uhura. Hey, she got to do the fan dance in uh, in five. And she got to put a guy in a closet. Have you caught up on Strange New Worlds? Nope. Okay. I will say nothing. I'm still leaning very heavily to just catching the finale and that other episode that doesn't decide to get weird and uh, and just calling it a season at, at, at eight. What was the last one you saw? Last one I saw was, I guess, Spock Becomes Human? Knowing you, you need to at least see six and eight. Mm-hmm. The crossover at seven, I liked the musical, but again, that's nine. But six and eight. Six is an Uhura episode. Eight is Umbenga and Chapel. And the finale is tomorrow. So I don't know what's going on there. But judging by the title, it's the Gorn. This season has both done a lot and then not very little. It's been mostly character focused. Mm -hmm. There's not been a ton of universe defining plot. It's been a lot about character. And wrapping up your central points from season one in that those first couple episodes. I will say the musical has a really good 
moment that ties into the classic films and Kirk's backstory. But yeah, so so there we go. That that's Dan's question. Our- uh, and then to answer for next generation, just skew that slightly. From uh, Asimov fangirl, as uh, of course Dan says on WMQ, our loyal Twitter inquisitor. We got three. First, is Batman a theater kid, a jock, or in the wise words of that little girl, porque no los dos? I do not think Bruce was a jock, or at least not a team sports jock. I do not think he had the patience for that. No, absolutely not. Uh, He was definitely interested in theater. I don't know if he did a lot of theater, but he he was thinking about how he could use theater. And I would think that Alfred might have, Master Bruce, take a theater course, please. It might give you a focus away from other things. Let you escape yourself for a moment. I tell you this, one of the biggest mistakes in my life, signing up for a theater course with my girlfriend and then having my girlfriend break up with me. That did not work out well, Matt. No, I I can imagine. That does not sound good. No, no, it's very weird. Don't do it. You know, I think he might have done things like swimming or martial arts, but I also think that if we're going for more of the tropes, he was definitely more in line with theater kids, angsty, you know, dark. I don't think he was hanging out with jocks. No, absolutely not. Our second question, which members of the Bat family are Trekkies? Uh, Tim? Yep. I think Tim, I think, again, Luke Fox. I could absolutely remember that the scene in uh, Lonely Place of Living where Luke is all excited to talk to Tim because he saw all of the coding he did in the Watchtower. I absolutely could see the two of them geeking out over Trek together. Dark Horse choice, but bear with me on this one. Cassandra. I can see that. I think the inherent humanism of Trek would appeal to Cassandra's trying to get more in touch with being human as someone who was raised to just be a weapon. I think the Spock and Data's journeys would appeal to Cassandra. I can absolutely see that. I think those are the three who gather each week and watch Strange New Worlds together. Finally, Thanks to Dan's recommendation, I finally started watching DS9. I don't know if that's supposed to be me or if Dan and my talking about it. But nonetheless, everyone in that base are my children, even Quark. So I want to know who are some of your favorite characters from there? You've never watched much or any DS9, have you? So no, just I, beyond I, me. Yeah, I, uh, I watched the pilot. I will, I will say my, my favorite Trek characters generally. Picard, Riker, McCoy, Space Seed Con. Okay. Do I have any more? I mean, Data and Spock are both interesting characters, but I feel like that's that's cliche. Uh and maybe Picard is too, but I don't care. Strange New World's still too new to pick a character who might have made that pantheon at this point. Oh, well, I mean, come on, Pike. I mean, that's just that's just a given. Uh, fucking fucking Captain Daddy could just fucking wreck me anytime he wants. Oh, he's so dreamy. 
Yeah, I think that's a good list. I will start with the DS9 characters, and then I will give you my favorites from elsewhere. Not an outside choice, but my favorite character from DS9 and possibly my favorite character from Trek, period, is not one of the regular cast, but a recurring, Elam Garrick. Ah, very appropriate. You're wearing the Garrick shirt. But I get a Star Trek uh, subscription shirt from Amazon every month, and it's just a it's a grab bag. Nice. I love the journey. I love this cagey character who you never know exactly where his loyalties lie, and Andrew Robinson plays that character so well. The thing about DS Nine. With very, with a couple of more minor exceptions, the characters in Next Gen are not overly dynamic. Mm. They're Picard, Riker, Troy, Crusher, LaForge. They have more experience in life, but they're not terribly different people than they were in Encounter and Farpoint as they are in All Good Things. Data and Worf grow and change more. Worf changes more between All Good Things and the end of DS9 than he does over seven seasons of Next Gen. The thing with DS9 is nearly every character in that series is fundamentally changed by the end of that series. They all grow tremendously over the course of that series. And that probably has a lot to do with them going through a war and what that does to people. But Garrick and Nog, the first Ferengi in Starfleet, are both recurring characters who have tremendous arcs. If you want to go with the core cast, I have a soft spot for Dr. Bashir. Yes, I know he is Star Trek's twinkiest twink, (laughs) but he, again, has a really interesting arc over the course of that series and also you can't get better than i'll say it as much as i love montgomery scott the greatest engineer in star trek history chief miles o'brien and a union man damn right outside of that picard and Riker, spock saru from discovery pike and I, I was leaning this way to begin with, but Lotus Eaters or Tagus? She I fly the, the ship. ship. If I didn't already love that character, that is that scene is an all-timer. Oh, that has got to be the high point of the season. That is a tremendous, tremendous scene. And one on a, a comedic pick, Shax from over on Lower Decks. Fred Tatashore just beautiful beautiful performance so old matt i'm so old i can't i can't take this this comedy in my star trek i can't handle it i don't know why i don't know why i just want i want some things to be serious i just that's that's all i want in my life i respect that i don't know why i'm this way i don't i really don't i see people enjoying aew and comedy wrestling and i'm like i don't i don't want that i want like 
serious angry men fighting over you know imaginary prizes in this fixed fake sport that i want them to take seriously i uh, am i just a grump is that my problem no i think everyone has different levels of exposure to things when i started really getting into next gen i also jumped into the novels and specifically the peter david stuff and as we know about Peter David. Peter David has never met a pun or joke that he didn't go for full force. So comedy has had a hook in my love of Star Trek to begin with. And I mean, I also have a soft spot for a lot of the comedic episodes of Next Gen and DS9. Cupid remains a favorite of mine. Sir, I must protest. I'm... I am not a merry man. It's a great line. And the moment where Jordy is picking away at the loot and Worf just takes it, smash it. Sorry. I know there are so many people who don't like the character. I love Luxana Troy. But because I also think a lot of the gags with Luxana Troy, at least as you get later in the series and some of Roddenberry's more unpleasant leanings when it comes to female characters sort of fade away. A lot of the comedy around Loaxana masks a lot of tragedy. Yes. That I will, I won't say redeems that character, but makes her much more interesting than just like the overbearing mother stereotypes. And again, she shows up on DS nine a few times and there's some real depth to what they do with that character on DS9. I know she has... Don't they have just like a stuck-in-the-elevator episode with her and Odo? Yes. Odo's... Oh, now that you've said it, it's like, Odo, I love Odo. I mean, René Bergenois is a wonderful actor. Saw him on stage once. The play was terrible, but he did a really good job in a bad play. Ah, uh, you, ever, you ever see much Boston Legal? Bits and pieces, and it's a series that I know I need to watch. James Spader, the good parts of Bill Shatner on screen, John Larroquette. You gave the name such such pizzazz. Give it to me again. Rene Abergenois. Yeah, there you go. Candace Bergen. Just some of the best actors of the last 30 years on television, all together in one place for three magical seasons. I will add it to the list. Oh, I will move it up the list. It is already on the list. And I don't know where it's streaming, but if it's not, I know my father owns them all on DVD. Hulu, I think. Okay. I will move that further up the list. As uh, as an ABC property. I think mm. that's in Hulu. And we also have a handful of questions from another previous guest of the show, another friend of the show, another writer over Comics XF, Tony Thornley. Hey, Tony, what you got, Tony? So we got a handful here. First, when are y'all going to really start diving into Tim Drake's solo series? So since I'm the one who plans most of the episodes, I will take this one. We collaborate. We do. We absolutely do. You've come up with some solid themes. I'm the obsessive who likes to come up with lists. That's my thing. I had really planned... The first, initially was going to do, say, year, but now it's sort of come to the the first hundred episodes, trying to not do many stories that did not feature Batman. 
But now that we've gone 100 episodes in, I feel like we can start expanding out into the Tim Drake series, into Nightwing, into Azrael and Catwoman and all of these other books. I mean, we've started. I mean, Gotham Central. But I definitely have some thoughts for some Tim Drake episodes, both the solo series and the mini series leading into it. And some of the Red Robin stuff. And definitely want to do some stuff with the Stephanie Brown Batgirl series. But I was playing around in the list uh, yesterday, I think. And I came across a Golden Age story, Batman number 40. And I just read the the, the summary about it. And it's uh, there's there's a television show that debunks popular myths or something like that and joker becomes upset about it and i was like what if we did an episode about batman being a skeptic batman just like what are you what are you guys doing this is dumb stop being dumb and like investigating something being that rationally minded detective i don't know if there's any other stories that might fit with that but that's one of them there is at least one two-issue miniseries. It's not the exact same, but it's sort of in the thing. It's called Batman Spectre Soul... A JLA Spectre Soul War. It's when Hal Jordan becomes the Spectre, and he comes to the Justice League for help, and a lot of them are like, yes, and Bruce is like, this guy killed a lot of people. And a lot of the thrust of the story is Bruce having to work with Hal and by the end coming around and thinking that Hal has actually worked to redeem himself. This story is completely forgotten by the way, when Jeff Johns takes over on green lantern because he needs Batman to be a dick towards Hal Jordan. Parallax stuff is still weird. Yeah. But yes, I I'm hoping sometime in the next, the next 25 episodes to do a Tim Drake episode. I mean, we'll be doing a few Tim Drake episodes over time. I know I have one that I've already written out, but doesn't actually have anything from Tim's solo series because it's a Tim Drake team-ups episode. It's a Tim and Nightwing story, a Tim and Stephanie story, and one I can't remember off the top of my head. But I know I'm basically specifically building it around Nightwing 25, which is Tim and Dick spend a night out fighting crime in Bluehaven together. Just the two of them being brothers. Love that. Question number two. What bonkers crossover are you surprised happened? What's one you'd love to see happen? Well, we just talked about one here recently. Uh, Batman and Joe Friday. Bonkers crossover. There's one that, alas has never been released in the United States. Oh. It is an Italian comic crossing Batman over with a character named Dylan Dog. Dylan Dog is a paranormal investigator character, an incredibly popular Italian comic book character whose sidekick is a I believe undead Groucho Marx or a Groucho Marx a spirit something. His sidekick is basically Groucho Marx. It was adapted into a movie in the States that bore no similarity to the original comic other than there's a character named Dylan Dog who investigates the paranormal 
but he's nothing like the character from the Italian comic. They just kind of took the name. And Brandon Ruth played him. And poor Brandon Routh, you can't give this guy a film property because he just never worked on the big screen. Nothing he did ever really flew, pardon my pun. Not his fault. No. Okay, Superman Returns, there was no reason why that. Thinking, you know, getting that on paper, that seemed like a slam dunk. And he did a great job in that movie. It's just, but there is a Batman Dylan dog crossover that is only in Italian and you can't get it in the States. I have hope though, because it was drawn by Werther Delorte, the artist on something is killing the children with James Tinian. So I'm hoping that his raised profile here in the States will get someone to translate it and have it appear here in the states even if it's just digitally even if it's a dc universe infinite exclusive thing i would love to read this comic because dark horse did a big black and white phone book of some of the dylan dog stories and it was really cool well if we're getting that weird joker raising bat baby manga i think anything's possible another one that is a bonkers crossover that I am looking forward to us covering one day. Batman, Hellboy, Starman. It's got Batman. It's got Starman. It makes me happy. It's got Hellboy. Batman uh, Aliens is weird to think that it happened. Okay, here's one. Batman Newburn. Pretty good. We get sort of what Barr was doing in Batman Year Two with Batman having to work with a mob heavy only it's not joe chill and it's batman seeing that newburn has a code and is not an inherently evil person but is willing to do the dirty work of the mob and batman having to sort of reconcile that in himself and with this person that for some reason he has to work with okay next question has Anson Mount's Chris Pike effectively added another facet to the popular Kirk versus Picard debate? And yes, I know the actual answer is Cisco. I'm not disagreeing with you there, brother Tony. This Pike is first and foremost charismatic. Like he is he is a charmer, but he's also passionate and he's got a real desire to see everyone do well. You know, I I think he's he's got that Bruce Wayne trait of, you know, I've got everybody's birthday memorized. I've got everybody's name. I look after everybody on the ship. He feels like a real leader. But Card wasn't always that way. Like, you know, you, you just said a couple of minutes ago, there's not a whole lot of growth between Farpoint and all good things. And I would, I would disagree with that. You know, the season one Picard is he's a real tight ass and that, that loosens up over the course of the series. Pike is already loose. I will agree with that. I will agree that. Yes. That, I mean, there's any number of episodes where Picard has to deal with children and we mm. see that, that growth. I won't say that those are cosmetic changes. They're not, but they're not. If someday we get you to watch DS9, Cisco is a completely different person mm -hmm. after seven seasons. But the thing about it is you see 
every step of that journey. It's not just that he loosens up. It's that he grows and moves beyond the guilt and the rage and the trauma from Wolf 359. I'm going to say something. I understand why people love Jim Kirk. I was never as big a Kirk person as other people are. He was always a little too swaggering and cocksure for me. Those aren't character traits that I look for in my characters. Confident is great, but swaggering never did it for me. And Pike has the confidence without the swagger. Mm. But I think one of the things that, for many of its other faults, the Kelvin universe did is giving us, and something that Strange New Worlds is doing, is watching Jim Kirk build that reputation and establish why he's so swaggery makes him just coming in as the swaggering character make more sense to me. And we've talked about this, but the thing about Kirk that's lost over the years is that he was the youngest captain in Starfleet. He is Wesley Crusher with charm. He is smart. He is driven. He is capable. He does not just fly around the universe and bone. I mean, he does fly around the universe <laughs> and bone, but that's that's not the entirety of the character. Okay, we got three more, and I'm currently editing the Azrael episode, which was the longest episode we had ever done until tonight. We are not going to regularly be doing two-plus-hour-long episodes. No. We're not Connor Goldsmith. This is not Cerebro. I got to make sleepies. No offense, Connor. Love your show, but that's not what we do. The next one is is a fun one. Let's see. If you were the editor-in-chief of Amalgam Comics today, what Marvel characters would you mix with the Bat family? I have two that are very on the nose, so I'm not sure. I mean, some of the amalgamations that were there are very on the nose and logical. I mean, your Dark Claw, your Batman and Wolverine, your Super Soldier, your Superman and Captain America, those ones were very on the nose, but they work. The two that I have that are on the nose, Red Hood and Winter Soldier. Yeah. Red Soldier. Winter Hood. Winter Hood or Red Soldier. And I think there it is more Bucky's background resurrected by the Lazarus pits and programmed by the league of assassins rather than the Soviets and bat 23, Cassandra Kane and Laura Kinney. Ooh. Yeah. That'd be interesting. Again, both born and raised as weapons. So she's dark claws, new sidekick. And those are the two that immediately come to mind. I also think mixing the Court of Owls with the Hellfire Club. But as my two major Marvel touch points are X-Books and Cosmic Books, and I don't see the Guardians of the Galaxy and the Bat Family mixing, would love to see a Legion of Superheroes Guardians of the Galaxy crossover, though. I think that's where I would I would go with that. But nonetheless, those are my, my Bat Family mixing with Marvel characters choices. Uh, Joker Pool. Hmm. And someday we will hopefully be doing an episode of some of the Amalgam stuff. The the Dark Claws, even Marvel versus DC. 
And there are plenty, plenty of Marvel and DC crossovers we haven't done. Batman, Captain America, the two Batman Daredevils, the other Batman, Spider-Man. They're all still out there. So we we will get there. They're not going to be making any more of them. So, Well, that's interestingly enough. Tony's next question. Should DC and Marvel continue to do crossovers? I think yes. It won't happen. I think there's potential. There's so much potential in there not being silos in fictional worlds. It shouldn't all be one fictional world, but these occasional stories, the thing about an intercompany crossover, I think we might've said this when you were on Tony, but specifically the thing about an intercompany crossover that should be the purpose of the story is pulling something out of the character either that you normally don't see or shedding a very specific light on one of these things through the lens of the other character. And I think there is a lot of potential in doing that kind of thing. I just talked about Guardians of the Galaxy and Legion of Superheroes. There's a really fun beat in the JLA Avengers crossover where when each team pops up on the other one's world, the Justice League looks at the Marvel Universe and they're like, this place is fucked up. The heroes here clearly aren't doing enough. And then the Avengers arrive on the DC universe and they're like, these are so shiny here and everybody loves these heroes. They're clearly doing, you know, mind control or doing something despotic to get everyone to love them. And I think the idea of the Legion and the original Guardians of the Galaxy, not the Star-Lord ones, but the ones from the future where the world was taken over by Martians or Badoon would be interesting to give the Guardians a degree of hope in, oh, there is a bright, shiny future out there. Things like that are why you want to do an intercompany crossover, not just wouldn't it be neat if the action figures bounced off each other. Did you remember the last time Marvel did a crossover? Yes. It was pre-Disney, that's for sure. Yeah, because the last thing I remember is something like, you know, Ash versus Marvel Zombies. That might be the last one. The one I was thinking of, now I'm, I'm looking up Marvel Zombies Army of Darkness to see if that does, okay, that, okay, that is later than the last one that I remember. The last one I remembered was an issue of Marvel Team Up written by Robert Kirkman that was Spider-Man Invincible. Hmm. But yeah, that was 05 and Marvel Zombies Army of Darkness was 07. That's Disney. I'm still shocked that we've yet to see some kind of Star Wars Marvel crossover. I think Marvel's dipping their toes in that with Wolverine Predator. Oh, wait, wait, hold on, hold on, time out. I, I have missed something. There's there's Wolverine Predator? I believe starts this month. It's a logical crossover. Yeah. I think that is a dip their toes in, see how people react, and then we might get, like, Guardians of the Galaxy aliens before Scarlet Witch does a chaos magic while somebody is teleporting, and the next thing you know, they're on Tatooine. I think that is down the line, but I think we're getting there. And the final question from Tony and the final question of the night, this is an interesting one. 
What story on the list do you feel is the most incorrectly ranked? Oh, Jesus. Could it be here for another 45 minutes? I have an answer for this one. And just because I saw, and I'll be fair, I saw this question before and was thinking about it on my drive back from getting my comics today. The most incorrectly ranked. All right, this this is some recency bias. And Matt took me to task for this as we were reading them. But, 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 uh, I think Three Ghosts of Batman at 223 is really too low. I, I'm still not on board with Club of Heroes at 219, but I could easily move Three Ghosts of Batman up like at least 60 spots. Uh, and I, on the other hand, am going to the beginning of the series or the beginning of the show. Holy Terror belongs way above two. <laughs> oh, of course. That that just goes without saying. That belongs at li- almost 100 spots higher. That belongs in the mid-hundreds, not the mid-200s. Yes. We're yes. going to be taking care of that. Our appreciation of a monkey astronaut has greatly increased. And that that book tries so damn hard the stuff that it touches on that is kind of problematic is not done in a problematic way like it's trying to tell a serious story well that doesn't always work the attempt deserves more than we gave it initially but yeah now that is it for tonight the Gandhi-sized episode draws to a close. With one final note. Will, thank you. This was a crazy idea of mine. And I, you know, had all sorts of thoughts on format. And it wasn't until you agreed to, you know, do at least the first episode and see how it felt that the whole (laughs) thing came together. You have become one of, you have become a dear friend and... I look forward to many more episodes. No, uh, absolutely. On this totally unique, 100% original, absolutely separate from anything other going on, any other podcast. Yes, it has been fun. Uh, this is a treat. And I have read so many more things that I would not have read. You you have reread 287 stories uh i have probably read 287 stories (laughs) well next week i'll be doing more rereading and you'll be doing more reading for the first time when our old pal josh wheel comes back with three stories from writer james robinson we'd like to thank our patreon backers for this 100 episodes and more beyond we'd love by the way to add more of you to those ranks how do they now, sign up for the Patreon, Matt? Well, they go to patreon.com slash batchat with Matt and Will. And hopefully Patreon will have worked out its uh, billing problems by next month. Because we'll, we'll take one more minute because this episode's long enough as it is. Just as a reminder, for $1 a month, just $1, you get added to the ranks here at the, you know, in the show. And you get episodes two days early on Tuesday. Usually in the morning, sometimes like this week at night when I'm away in Florida on a conference. For $5 a month, you not only get that, 
but you also get a bonus episode each month where Will and I talk about something else. Usually some piece of Batman media. Sometimes it's something sort of tangentially Batman. And I have plans for other bonus stuff to do in the future, but I'm not quite there yet. And I keep saying I will be. And hopefully after my vacation, which will have already happened by the time you hear this, but it's still in the future as I'm recording, I will have recharged and we'll be doing this. This month, by the way, is Lego Batman. It is. For $10 a month, you get to pick a story. And for all of our Jason Todd backers, I'll be reaching out to you again for your next stories. I apologize. I am behind on that. And for $25 a month, you not only get to pick that story, you get to come on the show and discuss it. By the way, as I just called him Jason Todd, each of our tiers are named for Robin. It's Damien at one, Tim at five, Jason at 10, and Dick at 25. But yeah, just come on by to patreon.com slash batchat with Matt and Will. But now, who are those Patreon backers who we love? Well, the heroes. We got Dan Groves, June, the conduit of outdated joke names. Jen, come in. Josh Wheel, Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum. <laughs> Our grand Patreon inquisitor, Asimov Fangirl. Tony Thornley. Go Utes. Sam Hopper, John Wickham, Robert Secundus, Bobby Tubox, Tim Rooney, Giorgio Sreggioli, David Wheel, and Alexander Wheel for their support. You can follow this podcast on Twitter, which we will continue to call it, at BatChatComic. And the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible, and at comicsxf.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash batchat with Matt and Will, where you can get shoutouts, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at mattles 1013 And I'm at Will Nevin. I'm also out of here. Good night, Huntsville. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat roundup of new Bat Books. For my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.